This is Colorado Matters. From CPR News, I'm Andrea Dukakis. The new year has ushered in Colorado's blue wave. This week, Democrat Jared Polis was sworn in as governor. Democrats were also sworn in as attorney general, secretary of state, and state treasurer. And last week, the legislature convened with Democrats in control of both the state House and Senate. So where does that leave Republicans now and in the future? Joining us is Jeff Hayes. He's the chair of Colorado's Republican Party and Hi, Jeff. Hey, good morning. How are y'all? Just fine. You just announced that you won't seek re-election as head of the state's Republican Party. How much of a role did the November elections play in your decision? It played a role in that it forced me to do self-examination as well as organizational examination. I think if we'd have won more, uh, I was enjoying myself, and I think we're doing a pretty good job, and I probably would have just kind of blindly stumbled forward and run for another term, but... Uh. Uh, it, it made me realize the limitations of the hard dollar side of the party. And for your listeners, you know, hard dollars are those direct contributions of the party and to the candidates that can be coordinated um, amongst, the, amongst the candidates and with the party. And because of Amendment 27, some of the restrictions we have in Colorado, I feel like I've done about all I can do on the hard dollar side. I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to do next. I just feel like it's time for me to move on and let somebody else give it a shot. You spoke with Colorado Matters um, that night from the Republican Watch Party, and it seemed you were pretty shaken by the results of the election. And here's what you told us. Uh, They obviously did reject the Republican brand this go-around. And I think it's incumbent upon us to really take a clear-eyed examination of what we did well, what we did poorly, and to try to rapidly fix the right things. You know, the, the one thing that's dangerous is to overreact or to react in a very emotional way um, to a situation that really has many, many different facets. Looking back, what do you think happened in November? Uh, I do think there was a brand rejection, and it was a nationalized election. You know, some of the people on our side don't want to talk about it, but I think that uh, uh, the president... Um, a lot of people on the Democrat side and some of the you know more left-leaning unaffiliated, they, they really hit a kill switch and said, we reject this. And so the president didn't play a factor. I think Jared Polis's money played a huge factor. Uh, we did a really good job on the hard dollar side raising money. Walker Stapleton uh, you know, did a really good job. But uh, Jared's personal check writing uh, was five times greater than that. Right. And that allowed other hard dollars to be freed up to go to other candidates. It also allowed um, Governor Polis to put his ground game in place over a year in advance of what we were able to do. So uh, the hard dollar limitations, um, you know, people expect too much out of the hard dollar side of the party. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Democrats have done a masterful job over the last 16 years of organizing their soft money, you know, the the PACs and the 527. Right, that are harder to trace. Yeah, and they, you know, they started out in the year 2000 with, uh, you know, what we affectionately call the Gang of Four, and people can read the blueprint and figure out how they did that. We've just failed to respond to that. And so um, this election, you know, was an event that was also indicative of long-term trends, and they've been very well organized. They've been able to have this fully funded year-round voter interaction ground game that we've not been able to duplicate. And, um you know, it's just not something that I feel like I can duplicate on the hard dollar side. So, again, I'm not sure what the next step is for me, but I just know that, um, you know, somebody else can come in. Maybe they have some fresh ideas and rejuvenate things. 
but I've really been honored to serve and I've enjoyed it. Uh, I always looked at it as a coaching paradigm because that's my background as college football coaching. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so the, the losses were not really, uh, they didn't drive me away or the criticisms. It was the introspection or reflection, I think, that made me realize that I need to go on and do something else. Does that make sense? Yeah. And um, as we said earlier, Democrats are now in control of both legislative chambers and the governor's office. They don't really need bipartisanship to enact new laws. And we've heard that um, talk about Republicans monitoring Democrats so they don't, say, take advantage of their new power. What role do you see Republicans playing in the current legislative session? Well, I hope we'll be thoughtful and, um, you know, assertive but also uh, engaged opposition. I know that we on the party are working with our minority leadership to make sure that we're messaging things that are going on at the Capitol and really juxtaposing what we would do in contrast. And so, uh, you know, if the Democrats have some good ideas for solving some of the problems in Colorado, I I feel like we need to be professional and embrace those things and, and get on board. But if they are doing things that really are in opposition to our foundational principles, Namely, government should defend your right to life, liberty, and property and not dictate all kinds of decisions. Um, Then, you know, I think we need to be in opposition. We need to make sure that the voters of Colorado understand you made choices, and these choices have consequences, and we provide what we think is a better alternative because we are going to have another election. (laughs) <laughs> well, um, to go to 2020, Representative Mike Kaufman lost his seat in the 6th Congressional District. Senator Cory Gardner is up for re-election in 2020. He's dis- distanced himself from President Trump by calling for an end to the government shutdown. What does he need to do to ensure that he keeps his seat? So Cory's got a good campaign team. Corey is, you know, I should say Senator Gardner is uh, an excellent campaigner. He's uh, he's just very charismatic and likable, and he's going to have uh, quite a bit of money involved in his campaign, uh, you know, direct and indirect money. And I think the president's going to be involved in Colorado. So I don't, I, I didn't see Corey's um, statements about border security and. Uh, the government shutdown is being necessarily in opposition or, or distancing himself. I think he's his own man, you know, mm-hmm. and he's expressing himself. He He's not going to be able to distance himself from the president because, um, you know, the president's doing a lot of good things that I think Senator Gardner agrees with. And, and we've seen that, um, you know, if the forces are right, and people realize that the president has done good for Colorado and he has done well for the United States. And, uh, you know, I think over time people will embrace that and they'll continue to embrace Senator Gardner because he's really been a good servant for the people of Colorado, I believe, irrespective of party brands. We recently spoke with State Senator Chris Holbert, who said that while voters restored Democratic control in the Capitol, they sided with Republican views in areas like taxation and oil and gas questions. Does that maybe Uh provide something for Republicans to build on in the future? Absolutely. And um, it gives us hope that the people of Colorado, when when they're given the opportunity, they will make rational decisions about their future because they, they did reject increased taxes. They rejected increased control. They rejected increased government manipulation of the economy and other things. And so that does give us hope because really those are our principles. Um, you know, we, 
uh, we support a multifaceted energy economy, and there are forces on the Democrat side that really want to drive the oil and gas business out of the state. That's really irresponsible and irrational. Um, you know, when we look at Governor Polis's state of the state address, very aspirational. Some of the things I think we could get them on board and agree with, but there right. are other things that, man, show me the money <laughs> to use Jerry McGuire. And I think Chris Holbert had uh, pointed that out as well. Uh, aspirations and, and talk, those are good things. Those are fine. But you have to have a budget that can pay for this stuff. And we have some long-term problems that Walker Stapleton was hoping that we would address by electing him. Uh, you know, the para problems that we have, long-term sustainability of our retirement system. Uh, I don't see a lot of great initiatives for fixing our our deep transportation problems, not just north-south, but also east-west. Um, um, I want to get to one more question just quickly, which is that oh, yeah. U.S. Representative Ken Buck said earlier this week he'd be interested in replacing you as party chair. He could stay in Congress, although it would be unusual to have an elected official lead the party as well. Your replacement will be chosen in March. What do you think about Ken Buck succeeding you or what kind of person do you want in that role? So I'm, I'm sure I'm biased. You know, I was I had a coaching uh, mentality, training mentality, but also project management because the party innately is a organized, train, equip infrastructure vehicle. Uh, but it's also fundraising. And that's one thing where I think uh, Congressman Buck could really bring uh, some weight into it. He's got uh, a lot of outside Colorado connections. I think that he could spend uh, some really quality time raising money for the state of Colorado. And if he appoints um, the right executive director, which I think we already have in place in Shauna Bamberger, if he has a strong vice chairman that can take care of some of the, you know, keeping the trains running on time, day-to-day operations, I think it could work. Uh, you know, Debbie Wasserman Schultz was the chairman of the Democratic National Committee, and that didn't work out as well, but it wasn't, you know, the function of her job. It was really kind of her personal decision-making, I think. And so, you know, Ken's a smart guy. Jeff, Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, I'm honored. Thank you. And, uh, you know, greetings to all the folks in Colorado. Let's have a great 2019. Jeff Hayes is the chairman of Colorado's Republican Party. He said he will not seek re-election this March. Hayes joined us to discuss the future of the GOP in Colorado. Today, federal workers missed their first paycheck since the partial government shutdown began three weeks ago. Some have been off the job. Others have worked without pay. CPR Max Weisick News Fellow Joella Bauman has been speaking with federal workers in Colorado. Joella, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Let's start with a couple from Pueblo. They're dealing with the reality of not getting a paycheck, but there's also this domino effect because they happen to be an important resource for other people who are hurting financially. Yeah. Amanda Suddeth is the director of a food pantry in Penrose, my neighbor's cupboard, and her husband, who wanted to remain anonymous, is a federal prison guard working for no pay. The pantry opened May of this year to help needy families in the area, and so they were already serving 200 families. They're finding more and more furloughed workers and essential workers are coming to the pantry. Our current count from last night is 50 families, and last night was our first time of being open since the message from the government came down that that it was going to stay closed. 
So that was a huge influx for them because a lot of these families were waiting to hear whether or not the shutdown would end before they came to seek help. And Amanda pointed out that there is a large concentration of prisons down in southern Colorado near Penrose. So they're being affected pretty greatly by the shutdown. Also, this couple and another, her assistant, Jenny Holiday, whose husband works for the Department of Commerce, run the food pantry, and they spend their own money on things like utility bills. The men in both couples are missing federal pay, and they're struggling to keep the pantry open. Jenny's husband and my husband have been taking care of the utility bills. Um, That is a concern for us. What once was not a big deal was like 130, 140 bucks a month for utilities. It's concerning now. So prison guards are one of those positions where people are required to work, but they don't get paid. What are you hearing about the pressure that that creates? Yeah, Critch Jansen is a federal prison guard at in Jefferson County, and he's also the head of the local union. For him, the hardest part is knowing that his job is already dangerous, and that is being compounded by mandatory overtime during the shutdown. It's definitely taxing on people, you know, especially when they're dealing with the stress of the shutdown, plus working so many hours. It it creates a very dangerous environment for the officers. So officers who would normally work an eight-hour shift overseeing 200 inmates in a high-security unit are now working 16 hours straight. He notes that as the union president, he's been hearing from many guards of the struggles they have, people coming to the union for help on mortgage, rent, food assistance, and he can't always help. Some people are already asking, what can I do to get unemployment? Rush to me, can the union help me out and write me a check? Or is there anything that I can do immediately right now to start earning money? Hmm. I understand a letter's been provided to federal workers, something they can use to ask banks to give them more time on mortgages and loans. What's been the response? Yeah, Chris Jansen told me he thinks that letter is more symbolic than helpful in the practical sense. For the most part, it doesn't work. You promised your mortgage company that you're going to make payments to them for the next 30 years. It's not their problem that you're not getting paid by the government. So they want their money. Jansen says that even when these employees are made whole, a large portion of their checks will end up going to late fees and back payments to get back on track. So they don't really recover. Hmm. Federal workers rallied in downtown Denver yesterday to highlight these difficulties. You were at that rally. What did people tell you? Yeah, I heard from Demetria Houghton, an IRS collections representative, who said with no paycheck today, she's going to be hard-pressed to pay her rent. I can't pay my bills. I can only go probably another week without a paycheck. That's it. And I rent. My landlord's got to pay his bills, so it's kind of like a trickle-up effect that it has on everybody else. I also spoke with Drew Flowers. She handles public housing assistance in the HUD office. She said she's doing fine for the time being, but she's also a cancer patient, and she's not sure how she'll continue to manage that. My health bills, you know, everything reset with the the new year, so I'm not sure what kind of health bills I'm looking at at the moment. Can these workers get unemployment benefits? They can. That is something that's done through the state, not the federal government. Many furloughed employees received a letter saying they were temporarily laid off, so they can use that to qualify, as can those without letters who are still working but not being paid. The rub here is that typically it takes three to four weeks for that process, and some are being told with a higher volume to expect something more like four to six weeks. And many people just don't have that kind of time on their hands. Right. Joella, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Joella Bauman is a Max Weissick Fellow with CPR News. She's been speaking with federal workers in Colorado affected by the partial government shutdown. Today would normally be payday. It's the first paycheck they've missed since the shutdown began.
You're lying down. You turn your head slightly. Then it hits. Vertigo. The room spins uncontrollably, and after about 30 seconds, it finally stops. Vertigo affects millions of people, including our next guest, who's determined to help others overcome it. Carol Foster is a doctor who specializes in vertigo at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. She's also the author of Overcoming Positional Vertigo, and welcome, Carol. Thank you. As I mentioned, you've personally experienced vertigo. Uh, Describe how it felt when you first had a spell. Well, the very first time I had a spell, I was um, in Hawaii. I just landed after a really rough flight in a thunderstorm, went into a restaurant, sat down, was expecting to have a wonderful time, and suddenly it felt like my head was spinning inside. And it was so violent that I had to hold on to the seat of the chair with both hands to keep from flying out of it. Must have been terrifying. It was because I had never had it before. I had no idea what it was actually caused by. I mean, I thought, is this vertigo? I had trained in ENT and I should have known that, but I had never experienced it and I didn't know how violent it could be. Right. And as someone who specializes in treating this condition, How did your perspective change after you started experiencing it yourself? Well, when I was in ENT training, um, I thought it was horrible. I thought people who had these diseases suffered terribly. And it was a kind of horror, like, I hope that I never have to have anything like that. And so then when it started, I not only found out that it was even worse, but also that the people around me, the doctors I saw, they had no idea what it was like. They had Mm. no concept of of how severe it was and how badly you need help. Mm, Yeah. And I can count several people who've had terrible experiences with vertigo, but I've been confused. It sounds like there are different kinds. Is that right? There are. There are many, many different kinds of vertigo. So you can have vertigo because your ear stops working, perhaps because a virus has affected it. You can have vertigo due to crystals in the ears, which is what the book is about. Or you can have vertigo due to your ear being destroyed by some other process, such as Meniere's disease. And these crystals um, in the ear are the most common form of vertigo, um, I believe. Is that that is correct, yes. And what's going on in the body when this happens? When you have vertigo? When you have these this crystal in your ear. Okay. so these crystals. So what the, the crystals do, they're actually in your ear to sense gravity. So they're little calcium carbonate crystals, the same thing as chalk powder or shells, seashells, Mm -hmm. that kind of material is relatively heavy and it acts as a gravity sensor. So the the crystals lie on a gravity gravity sensor and they press down and that's how you know which way is down in your ear. So Mm. they live in there. They're meant to be in there. The problem is they're not held down by anything. They're just piled on the gravity sensor and it's right next to a spinning sensor. So when you put your head in certain positions, they can accidentally just fall off and gravity will pull them into this ring-shaped spinning sensor by mistake. Mm. And from that point on, you have positional vertigo. That sounds like a design flaw. In our our ears. It is. (laughs) Humans have the same ears as all other mammals, and most mammals don't sleep flat on their back looking at the sky. And that's what makes us more likely to get this. Now, vertigo can happen at any moment. You can be driving, walking down the street, and all of a sudden you're dizzy. Um, You know, you talked about how debilitating and scary it was for you. How debilitating it is, uh, is it for other people that you've talked to? So it depends upon the kind of vertigo. If you have vertigo spells that are truly random and come on 
say you're driving or you're walking or you're in the shower, those things can be horribly debilitating because you have no warning and no way of knowing. Uh, If you have positional vertigo, you quickly learn that it's brought on by getting in and out of bed, rolling over in bed, or tipping your head up or down. So you get rewarded with a severe vertigo spell every time you make one of those movements. Mm. So you learn to be very, very slow when you make movements. And you wrote this book partly to help people with vertigo sort of take back control. And you recommend a number of head and body motions for people to deal with the condition. And you came up with this thing called you call a half somersault maneuver to treat this common kind of vertigo. Uh, How did you come up with it? So I had been treating patients for many, many years at that point. And positional vertigo, unfortunately, you can fix it with maneuvers in the clinic, but it keeps coming back. And sometimes it can come back every week, every month. It's very debilitating. So I was always trying to find different exercises for people to use at home. And I tried every imaginable thing. um, And they just kept showing back up. Mm -hmm. So I knew these weren't really working for the public. So one day I woke up and I had a vertigo in my good ear, I have one bad ear and one good ear. The good ear had the positional vertigo. And I tried to do all the usual exercises. And I couldn't get rid of it. In fact, everything got worse. And I was sick to my stomach. And so I just sat back in bed, because I needed to go into work to see patients that day. And I, okay, this is it. I have to figure this out now. You have to help yourself to help some other people. And so I just made a little model with my fingers of what the inner ear looks like and moved it and rotated it. And then suddenly it hit me. There was a way to do it by bending over forward. And so I dropped down on the floor. I did it. And it was gone. And so I knew it worked. And so I got up, went to work. And that day I started saying to people who kept coming back, hey, you know, there's this new thing I tried. Why don't you give it a whirl and see how it works? And it did, in fact, work. And you actually studied it and found that it worked, too. Right. So then we set up a controlled study where people didn't know, the doctors who treated the patients didn't know whether they had vertigo, which year it wasn't, and so forth. And we we compared the two exercises, and we determined that uh, it worked to relieve the vertigo and had fewer side effects than the other kinds we use in the clinic. And you're actually sort of putting yourself in the beginning of a somersault and sort of keeping your kneeling with your hands and um, knees on the ground and your head is starting to do a somersault when you do this maneuver. Correct. Yes. The key to it is that in order to get the, the particles to move, you have to get your head upside down. So it's like if you had a marble in a in a hula hoop and you were trying to get it to go all the way around the hula hoop, you would have to put the marble at the top and let it roll to the bottom mm. and then keep moving the hula hoop in a circle until they got out. That's exactly what we do with your head in these exercises. Now, by talking about this type of at-home therapy, we don't want to imply that people shouldn't see a doctor. But I understand you think there aren't enough doctors who know how to treat vertigo, this kind of vertigo. Why is that? Well, there are millions and millions of people who have this disorder, tens of millions in the world. And right now, there are some physical therapists who do maneuvers. There are some ENTs, but not all ENTs do them. There are some neurologists. So it's a handful of specialists who do this, and it's not commonly available. And with so many million people affected, I don't see why people should have to suffer while they wait for their appointment. You can always go in afterwards and say, hey, this is what happened and this is what I did. But why go through all that suffering? Hmm. Dr. Foster, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. 
Dr. Carol Foster treats vertigo at the University of Colorado. She's also the author of Overcoming Positional Vertigo. We'll post a video later today of Dr. Foster's treatment method at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Colorado produces more hemp than any other state in the U.S. So when the new federal farm bill removed the cannabis plant from the Schedule One drug list, local growers took notice. Then, just days after the bill became law, the FDA released a statement telling companies not so fast. There's still a lot to figure out. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis has reported on this issue, and she joins us now. Hi, Michael. Hey, Andrea. This statement from the FDA focuses on CBD. Give us a quick refresher on what it is. So CBD is a non-psychoactive compound found in the cannabis plant. And as you mentioned, hemp is a variety of cannabis, but by federal standards, it can't have more than 0.3% THC, which is the stuff that gets you high. So using hemp products won't get you stoned. Uh, That's marijuana's job. (laughs) And CBD all on its own, either derived from hemp or marijuana, it won't get you stoned either. I know CBD is being added to all sorts of things, candy, coffee, and lotions. People are also taking it straight using droppers or capsules. What are they using it for? So some say it helps with things like anxiety, sleep, and pain, but it's all anecdotal. There's never been any large-scale human studies to prove or disprove these claims. And people are already sold regardless. I talk with Brightfield. It's a cannabis market research group, and they believe CBD will be a $22 billion industry in the next few years. And what's really driving the boom in hemp growers, especially here in Colorado, is the CBD. The state legalized hemp along with marijuana in 2014, and we now grow the most acres in the U.S., like you said. Uh, Governor Jared Polis even mentioned the hemp industry in his State of the State address this week, saying he'd like to, quote, seize the opportunity to make Colorado the national leader in industrial hemp production. And I understand many of these CBD companies are really excited now that the Farm Bill has passed. Yeah, the farm bill and its legalization of hemp is a big reason why Brightfield, that that market research group, thinks CBD is going to take off. The industry has been operating in major gray areas, and Brightfield thinks the farm bill is going to clear some of that up. It could pave ways for major chains to carry products leading to a like an overnight boom in sales. And the CBD companies I spoke with are all very excited about this, and they are calling it a new day for what they do. But after the farm bill was signed, FDA's commissioner, Scott Gottlieb, released a statement saying, you know, don't forget about us because we're going to have a a big say in this. And tell me about that statement. Well, because of the partial government shutdown, I couldn't get anyone from the FDA on the phone. Mm. So what I've got is what they wrote in their memo. And basically, it says the FDA has regulatory authority over cannabis products, and they're working on what that exactly means for these companies going forward. Because the FDA considers CBD a drug because it has been found to treat certain rare conditions. It's actually the active ingredient in Epidiolex. It's a medication approved to treat rare forms of epilepsy. So because of that, the FDA doesn't consider CBD a dietary supplement, which are far less regulated than active drug ingredients. What does that mean, though? There are already a lot of companies that are selling CBD products. 
While the FDA statement focuses on cannabis companies that are making claims that CBD can do certain things like Mm. treat anxiety or prevent disease, they're not allowed to do that. So the FDA has been sending out warning letters to certain companies telling them to stop. And it does seem that's as far as their enforcement has gone for the most part. But the memo also specifically calls out companies that are adding CBD to food products because if a substance is considered an active drug, the FDA says it can't be added to things we eat and drink if that product is sold across state lines. CBD-infused foods are already available online. I know you spoke with one local company, Strava Craft Coffee. They add CBD oil to their beans. What do they think of all of this? Yeah, so I talked with Strava's CEO, and Andrew Amit says the statement is nothing new. It's what they've heard from the FDA in the past. He says the CBD industry has continued to grow and operate without enforcement, and he's, and he's never received a warning letter. He's keeping a close eye on what comes next, but says he isn't going to sit back while the FDA decides on its next steps. The hemp industry, I feel, is going to continue moving forward on its own while the FDA invests the necessary time to more fully understand and to more fully come out with the guidelines that will likely be in place for the long term. The FDA says there are current, quote, pathways for companies to be compliant, and they used Epidiolex, that CBD-based drug used for epilepsy, as an example. But that was approved after rigorous clinical human studies, and that, of course, can take years and be very expensive. But from the statement, it does seem the FDA is exploring the possibility of considering CBD a dietary supplement, and they might allow it to be added to food. So it's kind of wait and see right now. Is Amit worried about what comes next? He's staying positive because this just doesn't change that much for him right now. He admitted it's concerning, especially with the timing in the statement. He hopes the FDA can find a distinction between the product he's adding to his coffee beans and the potency and purity of what makes up, say, like Epidiolex. Nobody's trying to cross the line into creating pharmaceuticals outside of the FDA's purview. Uh, We're rather trying to present products that include these natural extracts. This is also what I heard from Charlotte's Web Hemp CEO, Hesmo Wellam. The company is based in Boulder and sells more hemp-derived CBD in the U.S. than any other company. Moellum says they've received warnings from the FDA in the past for making health claims and made changes. He hasn't heard from them since, so he feels positive that the FDA will work with him and other companies. I don't think that they're here to shut down business. I think they're here to protect the consumer, and we absolutely want them to do that. Michael, um, earlier you mentioned Brightfield, the cannabis market research group. Before this FDA memo, the group said CBD could be a $22 billion industry in the next few years. Are they reconsidering that number with all these unknowns? They aren't. I spoke with a director of research, and she expected this statement from the FDA and that they're going to regulate it now that it's theirs to regulate, now that it's federally legal. Michael, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis talking about a statement from the FDA concerning the legality around CBD products now that hemp is federally legal. Thirty years ago, five Denver actors were tired of being told their dreams were unrealistic because they had disabilities. So they decided to take matters into their own hands. CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf tells us about the lasting impact of their decision. It happened over pizza and beers in 1989. That's how Kathleen Trailer recalls it. We were sitting in 
in her living room. The living room belonged to Terry Westerman Wagner. And we're talking about, gosh, do you remember when we used to do theater back in junior high and high school? And all of a sudden the conversation gets around to it and it's like, we should start our own theater group. And I was the one that went, you've got to be kidding me. It just seemed so pie in the sky to form their own theater company. Westerman Wagner says it was hard enough to break into the biz as an actor, especially an actor who uses a wheelchair. Roll in there in a wheelchair and tell them that you want to audition and they look at you like a deer in headlights and literally will say, I don't know what to do with you. Kathleen Trailer, who also uses a wheelchair, adds, They could figure out how to get full-size elephants onto a stage. But to get a wheelchair onto a stage was baffling to them. And I think it was just scary. The liability issues, the accommodation issues. So that night, along with their friends Rick Britton, Kevin All, and Greg Vihill from the Betcher School for Students with Disabilities, they decided to give it a go. They picked the name Family, which now stands for Physically Handicapped Actors and Musical Artists League. That first year, they tried their hand at a costume party. That went well, so they applied for a grant from the state the next year. Trailer volunteered to write it. It was just a practice grant, but lo and behold, we got a check for $3,300. And we were like, oh, poop. We've got to put on a play, and we've got 10 people. That play was the musical Guys and Dolls. At first, it looks like a small community theater version of Guys and Dolls. And then you notice Dale Yergert playing Lieutenant Brannigan has cerebral palsy. Westerman Wagner says the run went off without a hitch, despite so much working against them. They had a tight budget, and this was also before the ADA. So many of them couldn't use the bathroom at the rehearsal space because it was on a different floor. We should not have succeeded, but I think it was by sheer determination of all of us that we just weren't going to let it fail. Popular musicals would become family's bread and butter for many years. The company performed shows like Oklahoma, Anything Goes, and Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Trailer believes seeing actors with disabilities take on these familiar roles can reframe audiences' thinking. We didn't want to write original shows that were about disability initially. We wanted to do plays about real people who just so happen to have disabilities, because that's what life is. So Dorothy and the Wiz was blind, and her service dog played Toto, and the Tin Man used a wheelchair. Choreographer Debbie Stark says she almost quit the first year she worked with family. She doesn't have a disability and wasn't sure she was right for the job. And it took me saying, you guys, can I get in your wheelchair? I don't know how a wheelchair moves. Today, she's going on 28 years of choreographing family shows. And so she's learned there are more possibilities than limitations with these actors. For example, she choreographed a kick line for blind artists. They stay in sync by giving each other physical cues. And for actors in wheelchairs, she reimagined the kick line using umbrellas instead of legs. The World Health Organization estimates about 15% of the global population lives with some form of disability. Teresa Eyrig says these individuals need to see themselves on stage. She heads the New York-based national nonprofit Theater Communications Group. It runs an equity, diversity, and inclusivity initiative. We exist as a field to lift up all people and the stories of as many people in our communities as we can And if we are not accomplishing that, it's a major issue. Now there are other theater organizations that include artists with disabilities, such as New York's Theater Breaking Through Barriers, Interact Theater in Minneapolis, and the recently launched National Disability Theater. Even so, 
Irene says family still leads on this work. Family has taken some leadership on modeling how to work with disabled artists with integrity and inspiring other theaters to do so. Theater and film critic Lisa Kennedy wrote about family during her time with the Denver Post. She thinks the company's longevity is in part because it blends its artistry and mission so well, and that enriches the experience for the audience. She felt that way when she saw Family's Fiddler on the Roof. Then I saw another Fiddler after that that I just wasn't as interested in because I felt like that Family had done a better job artistically. The disability rights movement actually has roots in Denver. We want to ride! We want to ride! In 1978, activists, many in wheelchairs, stopped traffic to demand more accessible public transit. Soon after, the group ADAPT formed and helped propel the national movement of disability rights. Don Russell of ADAPT considers family performers activists as well, just a different and necessary kind. Family's approach is about we're just like everyone else, and we're saying we're not like everyone else. We need this, and if we have this, we are then closer to equal and that normalcy that family was representing. This week, Family begins its 30th anniversary season. The theater company premieres an original work called Morph Masters. It highlights the stories of artists with disabilities. Artists like Stevie Wonder, Beethoven, Frida Kahlo, Stephen Wiltshire. A visual artist who lives on the autism spectrum. Artistic director Reagan Linton says the idea for this show came from a school performance the company did a few years ago. They asked the young audience, what does disability mean to you? One of the kids answered, well, it means you can't do things. And I was like, oh, hell no. Like, that is not going to be the definition of disability that these kids are left with. And so from an artistic standpoint, we started thinking, well, There are all of these amazing artists that lived and worked with a disability and were creative because of what disability gave to them. In a way, the show reflects Linton's own experiences. A car crash in college paralyzed her from the chest down. She says suddenly having a disability came with so much stigma. But performing with family changed that for her. They weren't caught up in, like, frankly, all the other bull that everybody else was caught up in. They were just focused on the artistry. That for me, was a personal transformation. As to where family will be in another 30 years, one founder says she hopes there will be a family-like company in every state. Another says she'd like to see family go out of business because, quote, there'd be no need for it. Linton instead wants it to become an even more important institution in Denver. And even when you're casting actors with disabilities all over all other stages, there's something still that's unique about family's aesthetic. Family has now toured nationally and internationally. It's received support from the National Endowment for the Arts. The theater company also continues to expand from its musical theater core, tackling Shakespeare and more original plays. And later this year, it will present a festival of one-act works by playwrights with disabilities. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. In addition to a new programming schedule starting Monday, CPR News continues to expand. You may have noticed more stories from different parts of the state, and a lot of that coverage is coming from our two new outstate reporters, Dan Boyce covering southern Colorado from Colorado Springs and Stina Sieg covering the western slope from Grand Junction. Ryan Warner sat down with them to talk about what they have in the works. You both have already had experiences that demonstrate, I think, how important it is to have 
reporters in these parts of the state. Stina, what's that for you? Well, so far, I think the thing that's illustrated it the most was right when the shutdown, the government shutdown began, I was able to just jump in my car and go up to Colorado National Monument and you just talk to people about their experiences of, you know, trying to get into the monument, not being able to. And it's the kind of thing that I wouldn't have been able to call anyone. Like you had to have like a boots on the ground uh, experience or else there was no story. Dan, what is it for you in the Southern Colorado Bureau? Yeah, well, I've been on the job for a couple of months now, and it's been it's been sort of a, a conscientiously slow ramp up. And, and I've really appreciated the opportunity to have that because unlike any other journalism job I've had before that, it's given me the, the chance and the opportunity to just get out and to, to schedule meetings with people and make those bedrock connections. But it, it hasn't only been in Colorado Springs. I, I've gone over into the San Luis Valley, down into South Park, over to Pueblo, up into to Canyon City. And I've just had a ton of people tell me that they really appreciate a reporter from a statewide organization coming down to talk with them without a specific agenda, not to parachute mm. in, but to come in just to get to know them and to know what's important to their area. Develop these sources. I'd be very excited to know if some of these folks just have never even heard of Colorado Public Radio. You know, I do think that we do have some work to do there, Ryan. Uh, When I'm in and around the the Denver metro area, which I had lived in for about four years before moving down to Colorado Springs, when you talk to people, more often than not, I would say they've heard of Colorado Public Radio. I don't find that to be the case in uh, my anecdotal experience so far in, in southern Colorado. And I think that is part of Stina and my position to be ambassadors for CPR down there, to, to dock on windshields of people we see when they roll down the windows, to change their radio dial and to scamper <laughs> off. And we are committed to doing just that. That's so direct. We to, won't do to, that. To tell people to wheel, yeah, wheel down their windows. <laughs> okay, let's get a little background on each of you. Um, you, Stina, you came to us most recently from Arizona, but you have a, a Colorado connection. I do. So... Uh, about 10 years ago, I worked in Glenwood Springs. I worked for the Glenwood Springs Post-Independent. And so I lived on, in the mountains for, you know, like a year and a half. And after that, I went and lived in Moab for time as well. So I have all this experience of collecting stories from, you know, these mountain communities, but also seeing Grand Junction as like the place you go to to sort of, you know, get your big city fix and, you know, buy underwear, do all those things you need to do that you can't do in the small towns. And so I really appreciate um, sort of being in the biggest place in this rural place. Yeah. I also think it's so fascinating how many people are fleeing the front range and the crowds here for Grand Junction and a, a less crowded, perhaps in their minds, more authentic Colorado. Dan, you've been in Colorado almost five years now reporting on energy and the environment. But you're from another western state, Montana. Right. Uh, my parents were born and raised in Denver, actually. Uh, they moved up to Montana in the 70s to escape those 70s crowds. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, I long for 70s exactly. crowds. Um, when I graduated from, from journalism school uh, 10 years ago now, people would ask me what I wanted to do. And I would tell them, you know, I want to tell western stories to the biggest audience I can because I love being from the West. I love living in the West because there's so much mystique. There's so much romance of so many of the stories that we get to tell out here about big landscapes and public lands and water, environment or whatever. And um, I think this job, it really gives me a, 
a unique opportunity in my career to sort of build that coverage for the region. Okay, I want to bring a third voice to our conversation now. I guess fourth. Um, I'm not counting myself. CPR's executive editor, Kevin Dale. And uh, he's as excited as we are to have Dan and Stina on board. But the, the growth does not stop there, Kevin. No, it doesn't. And I'm actually more excited to have them uh, finally on staff and, and reporting stories. Colorado Public Radio has had an expansion plan for several years, um, and I've been here a little over a year, and my goal was to accelerate that plan and to update it and expand it. Um, And so we're always evaluating the types of stories we should be covering and the places we should be covering them from. Um, And so in addition to Dan and Stina, we're now looking for a reporter to go to Washington, D.C. and report on Colorado topics, follow our delegation around, and to report on the federal agencies that touch Colorado every single day. It's interesting. When I tweeted this news, there was uh, quite a bit of excitement about this. And then there was one person who said, D.C. is like the most covered place possibly in the world. Why the heck would CPR invest in D.C. coverage? What's your answer to that? Well, the national politics are certainly well covered and and. Our goal is not to go to the White House briefing if they ever have them again or to report on the national stories. That's not what we're going to do. We're looking at what is the Colorado delegation doing? If we need to talk to Cory Gardner or Michael Bennett, we're going to be standing outside their door um, waiting for them to uh, to talk to us. And the same with the federal agencies, the interior, agriculture, EPA, all of these agencies have uh, a lot of impact on Colorado and the Mountain West, and and those are the stories that we're going to tell. Okay, I think we get to break right here, right now, some more news. Do you, I'm going to let you take it, take it all. You well, have all the glory, Kevin. <laughs> thank you. We uh, we are going. We're getting ready to announce that uh, we're going to start an investigative team. Um, the detail will come come later, but investigative reporting is an important part of what we do and need to do. And uh, as we continue to expand uh, the newsroom here, um, I'm excited that that's going to be uh, probably our next priority. An investigative team. So issues specifically that you all will cover, Dan. I, I can't help but think of the military presence down in Colorado Springs and uh, more largely El Paso County. And that's something that you'll focus on a lot in the coming months. Yeah, uh, a large portion of my coverage will be focused on the military. I've been speaking with with Kevin, my boss's boss's boss about this. And and the the sort of framework we're looking at is, you know, maybe even as much as as a third of of my focus will be specifically on the military. And I think that's important. Stina, what are you excited to cover on the Western Slope? For me, uh, I'm really just fascinated by people's experiences, their personal stories on the Western Slope. And the other night I went to a contra dance, which is like a folk dance here in town. Contra dance? Yeah, it's it's so great. It's like this it's this very simple sort of folk dance that happens all over the country, but it has an especially vibrant presence on the western slope. And so at that dance, you know, you saw people there was actually someone wearing like a shirt that was pro gun and then there was a bunch of like really obvious hippies and it was like all the facets of this part of the world. We're here together, literally dancing with each other. And for me, that's like an example of what 
what makes me love this part of the country so much is that there's everything and it all interacts with each other. There are so many rich personal stories that I know are going to come out of this part of the country. Did you dance? For hours. Ah! (laughs) (laughs) Thanks to all three of you for being with us. You're welcome. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you. That's Ryan Warner speaking with CPR's new outstate reporters, Dan Boyce, who covers southern Colorado for us, and Stina Sieg on the western slope. Also, Kevin Dale, who oversees our news operation. And a reminder, starting Monday, you can catch Colorado Matters at our new time in the morning, 9 a.m. Thanks for joining us. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.